Hi everyone and happy May Day here on Midtown Radio KW. My name is Allison Dijak and I'm a host and producer here at Midtown Radio and we're so excited to share our May Day special with you today. This year we are dedicating today's broadcast to the essential workers in our community and all of the incredible strength, resiliency and courage they have shown this past year dealing with the pandemic. Over the next two hours, you'll be hearing interviews from the Midtown Radio team and feature local podcast segments discussing what life has been like the past year in our community. We'll also be playing some local tunes for you and sending some shout outs and thank yous to just some of the amazing essential workers right here in KW Awesome. First up, we're going to hear from Matt Rappold. Matt got a chance to sit down with Kate Pierce and Ted Parkinson from the Mount Hope and Bright Up Park Neighborhood Association, right here in Midtown. Welcome to Midtown Conversations. My name is Matt Rappold, and today I am joined by Kate Pierce and Ted Parkinson from the Mount Hope Bright Up Park Neighborhood Association. Kate and Ted, welcome to Midtown Radio. Thanks Thanks for having us. So thanks so much for joining us. So we're here to talk about uh, some of the activities that are going on in our neighborhood associations and in our neighborhoods around KW throughout this pandemic time. But first of all, I wanted to ask for some people who might be listening outside of the Midtown area, um, can you give us a little bit more information about your neighborhood association, maybe the boundaries uh, of it, and, and what sort of region of Waterloo are we talking about with Mount Hope and Bright Up Park? Well, Mount Hope, Bright Up Park is really from King Street on the west to Victoria at the bottom and over to Lancaster and then up to Waterloo. So it's a huge neighborhood. I live in the Mount Hope part and Kate lives in the Bright Up Park kind of side. Uh, That's great. Well, Kate and Ted, tell us a little bit about what's been going on in uh, Mount Hope Bright Up Park for the past few months, or if there's been things that have been going on. Have there been different uh, activities that have been taking place with your neighborhood association or maybe even outside of the association in the community? Actually, one of the coolest things is um, close to where I live at Shanley and Duke, uh, there's a new development going in because the building was um, purchased, the uh, 152 Shanley. And there was a really great initiative that uh, Catherine Owens and Sarah Marsh and others worked with the developer, Shannondale. And uh, there's a whole bunch of murals that people painted. And uh, my wife and I painted one and Kate painted one. And if you walk along that street, all along the um, outside, like where they they put up the nice fence to, you know, prevent you from getting into where the construction will be. uh, There are really innovative um, posters or murals that people have painted on wood and it was all supplied by the developer. So that's the most visual thing that's happened that wasn't sponsored by the neighborhood association exactly but it was you know interested people in the neighborhood so that's been pretty cool that's amazing and kate so you you painted a mural for this i did yeah there's um 
I think there were 20 that were done in total. And so they put an open call out across the neighborhoods um, and you could pitch your ideas and they provided paints. Um, and so mine is just like a big sort of combination of colorful squares and stuff. But yeah, you can go along and they've all got different meaning and significance. And it's just a, a beautiful example of the community coming together. That's amazing. I'll have to take a look for that because uh, my partner and I sometimes cross King Street and, and head over into that neighborhood on our uh, on our daily walks. Well, let's talk a little bit about the Neighborhood Association. I mean, every organization has been having some challenges, especially volunteer organizations, um, you know, maintaining momentum throughout the throughout the pandemic. Um, so maybe can you tell me a little bit about what are some challenges that neighborhood associations are facing now and also maybe some of the opportunities that have come out of this, uh, this situation? Definitely. I'm laughing as you say that because that feels like exactly what the last year has, <laughs> has been is sort of ongoing challenges. So we, um, like many of the other neighborhood associations, had lots of programs that we had sort of like historically run. So we had a little soccer program that we run, um, the Duke Street West Music Fest, all kinds of fun activities that we in the last year had to really flip and think about how they could either be um, in lots of cases, things were canceled, some were able to be moved online, um, and some were able to be done distance. So there's been lots of adaptations that way. Um, the two real challenges that I have seen not only in our neighborhood, but other neighborhoods as well, um, have been uh, the, the move to be online and sort of what that looks like. So with the transition to lots of things being online raises the question about who has access and, you know, is it fair and sort of equitable for everyone across our neighborhood? Um, our neighborhood association uh, tends to have a lot more sort of younger families, especially on our board. And so we often skew um, really sort of heavy in terms of those activities. And so we've been trying to think about uh, reaching out to all, all residents. Um, but I think one of the other big challenges that we have is this kind of momentum we get excited and restrictions loosen and we have plans and then things change and, you know, we cancel or um, we just like lose steam and, and we get caught up in our own lives. And so I think it's been this balance of like fantastic, wonderful ideas um, and then, you know, doing doing sort of what what we can, where we can. But I think one of the other really cool things that's happened and I've heard about this in other neighborhoods as well is that um, it's like less about the the neighborhoods doing cool projects and just so many examples of individual residents coming up with their own activities. So we've heard about individual yoga instructors figuring out how to do yoga sessions in the park um, and art activities and, and music and all kinds of different things happening. So there are, there is, there are some exciting things to, to, you know, to see as they happen um, across our communities. So much is uncertain. Like last year we were thinking of putting out a newsletter, uh, but then the city said we couldn't. And, and they're the ones that print it. Um, then we didn't know about like how, you know, COVID was transmitted and so forth. So it's possible we could do that this year, but of course a big driver for that is promoting our events and <clears throat> we haven't really had any. So I think part of it is everything is up in the air, right? Because you think, oh, the summer will be great. <clears throat> and then, you know, the third wave comes and all the variants and things get worse. So I'm, I'm kind of hopeful we can do something um, like last year, uh, August 29th is uh, Sing on Your Front Porch Day, International Sing on Your Front Porch Day. Cool. I actually advertised that a little bit and was able to put on our website about, I don't know, four or five of us 
around the neighborhood we're, like we're doing something so um that was like our little uh music fest kind of so I, I imagine we'll do the same thing this year yeah that's really nice i know live music is something that really does bring the community together and it's been so challenging i know i'm for myself and for you ted as musicians and i'm not sure kate if you're also a musician as well as an artist but no, uh, for no for... definitely not <laughs> For the well, I'm not. I'm my. I'm not an artist at all. I think we can have sort of one thing that one artistic thing that we're uh, that we're good at. Um, but for us as musicians, I know that's that's a great way to bring community together. And it's been so hard um, not having that within our communities uh, in the past few months. I'll say one thing. Um, Kate is a patron of the arts because uh, she asked for people to sing at her daughter's uh, birthday last year. So I said, <laughs> sure, I'll do that. Like whatever, I'll bring my guitar. So it was pretty cute because it was on her front porch and she had put out like, I don't know, like a dozen chairs, all with stuffed animals in them. So I had an audience. So, oh, that's so nice. It <laughs> was, amazing. yeah, we had um, pretty funny. four or five different groups come and, and play on our porch. And that, right, this is like, like, how do beautiful moments happen? All my neighbors looked out and saw us putting all these stuffed animals out on the grass and then they came out with their stuffed animals so we had this like the lawn was covered and and people like ted rolled up and they were like oh we i am playing to an actual audience <laughs> that's and then amazing. two very happy four-year-olds jumping around so oh that's amazing but, i mean that's so nice to hear some of these stories of, of really positive things that neighbors are doing to keep connected that's great and one of the uh one of the things that we're trying to do with this mayday broadcast is also talk about uh, the work of essential workers that are going on and i know here in cherry park uh, at the beginning of the pandemic and and still i mean even a year on into it there's been a lot of displays whether it's signs or pot banging and, and things like that to thank the essential workers especially for you know in our neighborhood we have grand river hospital uh, and as as well as many other you know the schools and and many other um, uh, uh, institutions that are open now during the pandemic so i'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how your neighborhood was recognizing the essential workers or is continuing to recognize the essential workers uh throughout the pandemic um yeah so we we've seen sort of across uh, across both I, I say both sides of our neighborhood because sometimes we were divides us um but saw lots of displays um both in um like pictures and windows and blue ribbons, you know, doing doing lots of recognition that way for their incredible work and the the seven seven p.m. or seven thirty p.m. pot banging, I know was really popular on the Midtown side for quite a while. We didn't have, I think, quite so much of it here. Um, yeah, so we've been been able to do a little bit of that, but I think that's also sort of as we go through the waves of it, and especially coming out of winter, um, seeing a bit of a resurgence in terms of the support and recognition for that. And I find really awesome little pockets across our neighborhood where you can tell that people are, are still very much, you know, invested in recognizing that important work. For sure. And I have one more question for you, Ted and Kate, and thanks so much for joining me today, uh, today here. Um, we mentioned some of the activities that are hopefully going to be able to happen throughout the summer. You talked about singing on the porch and, and getting live music back. What are you personally most excited for uh, for events post pandemic? What are you what are you missing right now that you're looking forward to getting back to once we get through the situation? Well, as a you know musician, although I've been performing on Zoom, it's actually that's been really fun. 
maybe I won't go back to live. Who cares, right? It's, <laughs> it's been really great singing twice and, you know, having an audience of 10 or whatever. Um, we are hoping to do something with the uh, Duke Street West Music Fest. I don't know. We are actively right now, we have a photo contest and that's on our website. So we're trying to, uh, you know, get people to work together and do things in the hood, like as a family, you know, have, have people sketch or take photos. Another thing I've noticed walking around is there's, it seems to be a lot more chalk on the sidewalks, which is interesting. Like some of them are messages about, uh, you know, care workers, healthcare workers. And then there's other messages and people have painted things. Some are more permanent. So just walking around Mount Hope area um, and through the cemetery, it's been interesting seeing that kind of activity. It's uh, funny you, you say that because we put out a big hopscotch in front of our house all the time. Mm-hmm. And I cannot tell you the number of adults who come down the street, stop and are just like, I'm going to do a hopscotch and they're, they're going back and forth and the kids are watching them and are just like, who are you and what are you doing? And the, like, it's so cool to see those kinds of things happen. And I hope that kind of stuff continues to stay. Um, sure. I'm really, ex- really looking forward to getting back to having a lot more sport programming. My kids are very busy and very active and we use the local pool as much as we can. And so anytime it opens back up, we try to get over there. But I think for a lot of people, like um, those opportunities to, you know, to come together to do different sports and activities that you like, that kind of connection and the physical activity and the sense of community that comes along with it is going to be going to be really exciting and yeah like ted said if you if you live in the mount hope right up park neighborhood association check out our photo contest we um have uh gift cards for some winners that we have that we collected from a whole bunch of different restaurants and stuff around our neighborhood so it's a a pretty cool activity to help out with yeah that's amazing Great. Well, Kate and Ted, thank you so much for joining us here today on Midtown Radio. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. And I can't wait to go check out that mural uh, that you were talking about in your neighborhood. I'll have to cross King Street, go check it out. And uh, I really appreciate your time today. Thanks, Thanks man. for having us. Thank you. That was Kate Pierce and Ted Parkinson from the Mount Hope Bright Up Park Neighborhood Association. My name is Matt Rappold, and thanks so much for listening to Midtown Radio. Hi, my name is Danielle DeVoe, a producer with Midtown Radio, and I am here with our community correspondent, Maya Kanana, who is also an early childhood educator in Waterloo Region. Maya, thank you so much for agreeing to chat with me today. Thanks for having me. <laughs> So you work in a frontline capacity, you're around children, you have your own children, and then you work with other people's children, some of their parents are likely essential workers. So how have you been thinking about the risks that you're taking on when you go out into your workplace every day? So since the start of the pandemic, we only had like a few months where we stayed at home, where it was like everyone had to stay at home, even the essential workers, like, I mean, the early childhood educators. But then we, we had to come back to work in July. It was a big challenge when I see like other people are still at home and they can work at home. But unfortunately, we cannot work from home. It's like we work with the younger children. So it's very difficult to work virtually. So we had to go there and it was a bit um, 
we can say it's a, it was a bit like a challenge. There are lots of stuff that we have to implement in our daily activities. In addition to teaching and being with the children and caring, it's really like not easy to work in such a, a workplace. Mostly that those children need lots of cuddling. They need lots of attention. You have to hug sometimes, mostly with the younger children. So imagine at the beginning, I still remember. So when a child cries, like your instinct would let you go and hug this child or like to calm him down. But with the start of the pandemic, we had to put a blanket over our body, go close to the child and hug, make, making sure that the child is not touching your body or your clothes. So you had to have the blanket around and you have to like to stay as much as possible away from his face. Remember also these are toddlers that cannot put a mask. Uh, I know that the, the older ones are supposed to put a mask even when they went back to school, but our children cannot put a mask. They're little ones, they're toddlers. So it was like not, not really easy to, uh, to handle it, but we made it. You can say we made it. Yeah, it was somehow successful. Yeah, I'm always amazed every time I see any of the childcare workers at my daughter's school that are, you know, they're, they're wearing scrubs, basically, and they're walking around with their, all of their PPE. And it, it even just changes how exhausting being at work is, you know, if you're wearing a really good mask, it's, it, it is harder to breathe. It's possible. There's no reason not to do it, but it does just add an extra kind of layer of fatigue. Did you find, um, are you better handling that now? Initially, did you find your work days were more fatiguing when this, when this started or, or was it just so busy that you didn't even have time to notice? No, I think yeah, you're right. Like we, we, we got to adapt with time. But I still remember like at the very beginning, um, even those children like hated the idea of putting a mask and the shield. I remember like, you know, when they're coming to a new environment, so they're trying also to adapt. Like they're not happy also to start with in a new environment. They want their mom and dad back at home. So when they look at us and they, we're having the mask and the shield and like they start to, to get it away. Like we don't want this. We want the face. We want to see like, you know, the, the, the facial expressions. So it wasn't really easy at the beginning. Now you feel the children really got used to the idea of having a mask and the shield. So now they, they can easily recognize you with the mask. Like they can see their parents putting the masks all the time. So I think now because everyone is, is doing this, like it's not something new to them. So they're getting used to the faces even with the mask on or the shield on. I think it, it gets easier with time. Like you just get to adapt. But no doubt it's not easy to... To keep this on mostly in the summer weather maybe now we can we'll go back to the summer and to the hot weather maybe I can remember like how frustrating it was like you have to keep it on when it's really hot outside so let's see how things go yeah well and it's it has been a year now and it is sort of well not a year since childcare facilities were opened back up I guess and I, I thought that was it's hard to remember that even daycares closed in that initial period when we think about how many things right now we're ostensibly in a stay-at-home order and a lockdown but things so many things are still open and certainly childcare, and that has to do a lot with who who is deemed an essential worker and the fact that people's children require require child care but I think there is at this point a lot of burnout in the system and I know you've been 
not just seeing that, but also hearing that in terms of the conversations that you've been having with other essential sectors. So you've been talking to people in healthcare and in education through your Midtown Conversations interviews. And I just wonder if you could give me a sense of how people are feeling, frontline workers, essential workers, people in essential industries, particularly that are out there with kids or with patients, you know, what is the sentiment in terms of how people feel at this moment in time, at this stage of the pandemic? So Daniel, as you've, as you've known before, like I have interviewed the business sectors, the educational sectors, health, health sectors, and I feel like I belong to each sector by itself. Like, as I told you earlier, I also have a nursing background. I'm a, I'm a, I, have, I hold a bachelor degree in nursing. I also have a teaching diploma. I uh, I feel like I belong. So I really feel when I'm when I'm interviewing those people and those professionals, I feel like I really understand what they're going on. And like all of us, I'll, I'll, I'll include myself as well, we're having the same frustration. Teachers need to feel to have this feeling of security, whether emotionally, whether physically. So we're all at risk, but we have to do it. So we are there and we love our job like no doubt we love what we're doing but we're still like we are at risk so we do have this confusion like I'm happy to go but I'm also afraid I don't want to come back home like holding anything to my own family as well all of us all of these sectors had the same issue the risk and the feeling of insecurity whether I can come back home safe I don't want to transmit anything to my family I don't want to put my family at risk so this is a bit causing somehow inner confusion. Yeah, well, and we're going to be hearing a couple of your your interviews uh, over the next couple of hours in our May Day special. One of them is with Jeff Pellicht, who is the Vice President of the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario Waterloo Region. And so he's in an interesting position because he's in a leadership position related to education and how we are, how that sort of transition to virtual learning uh, has has gone and, and how teachers are experiencing that. So what's the big takeaway you think uh, from that interview in terms of the state of education in Ontario right now and in terms of people's, people's work lives? I felt like this helped me like get a better view of what's going on and made me also like further appreciate the the teachers nowadays mostly was as as he highlighted on the issues of virtual learning and as he said about the maybe the little gaps that we never thought of maybe opening the cameras maybe managing the class when everyone is there sometimes the child turns off the camera while he's he's talking or while he's uh, in his lesson so these little details like are really a big struggle and like it's not easy for the teacher to manage uh and continue with like successfully yeah well and i think we hear adults talk a lot about zoom fatigue and how they're so zoomed out and you know so it, I, I think we're all sympathetic to what children are experiencing on the other side of of that camera and, and, and the need for teachers to really find creative ways to keep students engaged it is really hard to, especially when with a class 
a regular class size class. I mean, that's, that's, that's a terrible zoom meeting. If you had a, if you had a work meeting like that, it would, it would just be too hard for everyone to feel engaged or like they could contribute or, or be productive, but teachers are, have really found ways uh, with, I think, with very little guidance initially uh, from the province as well. But if we, I think we'd like to switch gears to those people who now can't work from home. And so you, of course, you're an early childhood educator and you have a conversation with an early childhood educator coming up as well. So what are some of the things that you discuss in that interview in terms of, you know, what the, the risks are, what the frustrations are? It was really a great uh, interview. Uh, mostly when I knew like, I, I won't say the frustration. I would say like the, the love of the job, like ECEs love when they choose this path, they really love their job and they, they really love the children and they chose it because of this love to children. So the main concern was the lack of appreciation for this sector. So we can see like now, all schools have to go to virtual learning for the safety because lots of cases are going on in elementary schools and lots of students are, you know, getting sick. But still, the, this section, the ECE section or the child, child care centers are being aside, like as if you are fine, you are immune as if like to, to whatever is going on, but you can still go to, to your work without any consideration. So that was a bit, a bit like a frustrating for, for the association. So I feel like this section or this sector is not being really well appreciated as it's as it deserves to be frank but it is appreciated maya thank you so much for everything you do for our community getting out there and looking after our children keeping them safe and healthy and also for midtown radio maya is our community correspondent and in the next couple of hours you're going to hear a couple of her interviews that she has conducted with uh, people working in uh, essential fields, in education, in early childhood education. So please stay tuned to our May Day special for more of, of Maya's conversations with our community members. And thank you so much, essential workers. And thank you, Maya, for chatting with me. Thank you. What I'm after is like a song.
Out of touch and out of reach, I just wanted to be free. All this time, I held the key. I held the key. Out of touch and out of reach, I just wanted to be free. All this time. And professors who have taught us everything through this difficult time. We also thank and respect the doctors and nurses for saving millions of lives through this stressful pandemic. Thank you so much, you guys. You're awesome. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Midtown Radio. Educators were and are still living the chaos of online teaching and experiencing the fear of this major transition. How will learners with difficulties or short attention spans stay engaged virtually? My house is not set to teach virtually. Where do I sit? How do I avoid distractions while teaching? How will my own kids manage studying at home and undistracted? And if it happened, how do I keep my students from drifting away? How can I keep them on track with all what's going on around me? If virtual video recordings compensate the, the presence of educators, will they ever consider hiring me again? All these concerns are a cry for help by educators who are living the chaos but never give up. Today, I have the honor to be joined by Jeff Pellish, the Vice President of the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario Waterloo Region. Welcome, Jeff, to Midtown Conversations. Thanks for having me. How have you and the family been holding up during the pandemic? Well, it's certainly been interesting. I am an, very much an extrovert and uh, being <laughs> told to stay in my house as much as possible and not see people is uh, can be frustrating at times. But thank goodness we do have technology nowadays that we can do some uh, Zoom meetings like this or some uh, other online stuff. But unfortunately, it's the, the in-person things that I like the most, but we're doing fine. Yeah, we're all sailing in the same boat. <laughs> yeah, totally. All right, so I encourage our listeners to be all ears and get ready for an awesome conversation today. Listen to Jeff as he discusses the challenges, preparedness, and plans educators undergo with virtual learning, all the strength, challenges, and strategies to overcome those gaps. All right, uh, Jeff, the move to virtual learning was implemented as a temporary measure, supposedly, to deliver the emergency instructions during the global health crisis. Now we see the plan might shift to a permanent uh, virtual learning. So first, I would like to give a heads up to all the educators for the fast and effective implementation of virtual teaching. Educators are real heroes, and no one can argue how outstanding they prove themselves to be. 
So when the plan of virtual learning had been put into action, what were the considerations while preparing the educators for this step? And based on the assessments, is online teaching effective uh, addressing like different abilities or learners with different abilities? Well, I think for us, because of the way that the pandemic played out um, last year in March, we had a few months at least to kind of try some different things out online um, in a little bit less of a structured formal um, setup than it is now. So educators were online with their students, but there wasn't the requirement that they were synchronous all, all the time with the students. They weren't to be online all day. It was kind of to uh, give them some learning opportunities, but also recognizing that no one really knew what was happening. The pandemic was still so early on. Um, and so it also gave people an opportunity to spend some time training. The, the challenge has always been, um, there's never enough hours in the day. Um, and so I, when we talked to teachers here in, in our region, it was very much always about, I spent all my day on the computer and now there's all these great learning opportunities, but they're after school, they're on the weekends. And so uh, people were doing it, but then becoming a little bit burnt out because of that. So I would say that a lot of people spent their time doing uh, as much learning as they could. Um, and then uh, when things began a little bit more formally in September, they had a little bit better understanding of what was happening. Um, unfortunately, in a lot of situations, even for back in March when people were just beginning, there wasn't really, um, there's so many different levels of skill when it came to the technology itself. And so it took a lot, a lot of some people a lot more time to try to figure out what uh, learning environment they were using and, and how that worked. And then in September, um, again, it was very much, we were going from the couple hours or a few hours a day to full-time online learning for a lot of uh, our uh, teachers. And that was a whole different learning uh, curve for them. Um, and so, I would say that it's definitely been a challenge getting ready for it, um, but I think a lot of our educators have risen to the test, the task, and uh, and and many would say that they uh, have developed some skills that they hadn't had before, um, because really they don't teach us this when you go to a faculty of education or to a teachers college. They don't teach you how to do 100% online learning, and the majority of us have never been in a 100% virtual learning school. That's just not how we were taught. Um, and so it's, it's a set of skills that isn't the same as just saying, well, do what you do in class online. It's not the same. It is definitely not the same. As far as how things, how effective things have been, I think it really depends on, on the learner. Um, it's not a, a one-size-fits-all approach, and it's the same in the classroom. Sometimes you do a, a certain assignment, and it works for uh, uh, some children and not for others. Um, and so we differentiate as best we can. Um, but when you move to online, that ability to differentiate and to change things up for each individual learner is a little bit more challenging um, because so much is done virtually. It's not like uh, a hands-on task where um, other than, you know, doing the hands-on task and then recording it, sending a video or picture of what you've done, it's, it's not the same. Um, so I would say there are some good, great things and some things that people have learned and probably when they uh, return to in-class learning permanently, they will implement. Um, but overall, um, I would say the in-class learning experience is absolutely a better mode for the majority 
uh, of our students out there. So it's, it's definitely, it has its challenges, I would say. Mostly like some students might be, uh, as I said, maybe with short attention span or like originally they, they required one-to-one. -one. So even when they were in class, they required the one-to-one to really like be focusing. So how come with the online, with all the distractions around in the house with mommy and daddy being around and, you know, it's, <laughs> it's very distracting. So I know it's a big challenge. Yeah, it is. And actually, that's a really interesting point, because sometimes what happens is uh, the students who are struggling the most, you don't know what's on their screen when you're on the other opposite end yeah, of another right. screen somewhere in another somewhere, sometimes somewhere in another city. Um, and we're also finding uh, getting a lot of reports from our members where and teachers that have said that uh, often the students cameras aren't even turning on, particularly in the older grades. So there's it's impossible to actually gauge how much the students are in, involved and and engaged in the learning and and you know motivated to learn because you can't see them and so you don't have that feedback in the same way so it's really really hard like you said to keep them focused on the task at hand all right so like after a few months of online teaching what are the strength and the challenges whether technical whether uh, readiness implementation and the plan you set also in terms of standards and equities and overall responsibility of the educators and what do you think are the key factors for making online teaching efficient? So I think when we started the online learning, we were lucky as a school board um, that, and I use the word lucky generously, we were lucky because every educator did have, um, and, that, and when I say educator, I mean actually just the classroom teachers, um, had been given a Chromebook by the school board already. Um, and we were looking at in most schools, probably a two Chromebook to one, or sorry, one Chromebook for every two student kind of ratio going into things. So the technology and the access to the technology was there. Um, and the reason why I say it was very, it's very generous to say we were lucky is because Chromebooks are not powerful devices. And um, having an educator in front of a small Chromebook with 30 students or 25 students, as well as trying to run a presentation to try to do some other things with videos and audio. It's just not, it just doesn't work. Um, so I'd say one of the biggest challenges is just access to technology to make everything work fluidly and flawlessly. Um, and then when we transitioned um, in September, for most people, they were heading back to the classroom, but the teachers who were doing the online learning, again, they weren't given any additional technology. They were expected to use a Chromebook with a quite a small screen. I don't think it's 12 inches. And really, they didn't have microphones. They didn't get earphones. There was some um, resources, curricular resources that were provided, but really the technology for most of them, if they wanted to do uh, go above and beyond, it was on their own on their own dime. They had to pay for it themselves. And so that was a big challenge for, for a lot of people when it came to the the technology technology side of things and that's just with staff because obviously virtual learning comes with some challenges for the technology with with students as well and and we have students from all walks of life from uh very privileged and uh very privileged communities here in the waterloo region and also people who uh, are from more vulnerable communities who you know income is more challenging for them and so being able to find money to uh, have a piece of technology at home that works is challenging. So the school board did make an effort to get technology out to those folks. Um, again, 
Chromebooks aren't always the best. And if a student was using a, a Chromebook and it broke, the process to get it repaired is not an hour kind of fix. It's that you need to bring it to the school. It has to go get fixed from the education center. Sometimes that would require students to be offline for multiple days. So it's, it's definitely more of a challenge um, when you're in the middle of a pandemic um, to get all that technology out for everyone to, uh, to go. But I would say that we were for sure more ready than maybe some other boards, um, but it wasn't perfect, and, and it, nor was anyone really expecting that. And then I would say as far as what virtual learning full-time looks like, how well it was implemented, implemented from a curriculum standpoint or an overall program standpoint wasn't easy as well. Um, Again, this is something that's never really been done here in the Waterloo region, or I would say even uh, provincially uh, in the province of Ontario, that uh, we have students in elementary grades 100% online. Um, and that would be from kindergarten to grade eight. Um, I mostly taught grade seven, eight in my career, but I was trained for grade five up or grade four up. I can't even imagine what a kindergarten classroom would have looked like or would look like because it's still happening online. Um, and yes, we have uh, uh, an educator, a teacher, and a designated early childhood educator in those classrooms. But it's still, it's, it's unbelievable some of the work that they've been able to, to do with those students online. Um, but again, they started from scratch. They had to learn what was best, what uh, worked as far as the pedagogy, um, what worked for differentiating, all of these things that became that really most educators is just second nature. It's what we do. They had to figure it out. And then I would say the other big uh, implementation challenge um, in the virtual world is what does classroom management look like um, online? Uh, oh, yeah. In class, <laughs> again, we, we know all these tricks for, for in class, but when it comes to what it looks like uh, virtually, it's, it's just non-existent. Um, and then you try to do some... Uh, classroom management in the virtual world, but then you have an additional challenge where often the parents, you can see the parents in the background as well. Um, so <laughs> it just adds that extra level of anxiety for a lot of educators because they know they're being watched. They know they're, they're being judged based on how they're handling things and they're trying the best that they can and, and doing the best um, with the skills and the tools that they have. But it's, it's certainly not something that's easy. So the whole idea of, of implementing this program, if we had the time, if we had uh, years where we knew this was coming, we, it would have been much better, but it was just the last minute. Everything was last minute. Everything was changing constantly. That made it uh, very challenging. All right. So um, I can, it's so clear that we all prefer the on-campus teaching rather than the virtual teaching. And we, I've seen also some articles from the Elementary Federation uh, that you prefer investments to be in on-campus teaching rather than shifting towards the short path of vir virtual learning. So tell us more about your concerns in regards and what makes on-campus a preference, though you proved successful as well in virtual learning. Yeah, I think the, the, the reason why there's a big push from pretty much all of the education union groups uh, against virtual learning is really the there's no plan other than it's something that needs to be done. And uh, there are no set guidelines of how many students are going to be in those classes, how long they're going to be, nothing. It's just kind of, it's a way in, in our mind that the government is taking money away from classrooms 
frontline teachers, front for the students in those classrooms, the schools, the in-person schools themselves, and kind of sending it off to another group, um, opening it up to, to much more things like private education or there's just so many different concerns that come along with it. The reality is, and we know this from our own students, is that virtual learning is good for some, but it's not good for all. So I think our biggest concern is just, you know, creating a program that is 100% virtual learning for, for students is, is very risky. Um, and we're just not sure how many students it's actually going to impact. And then there's also some some challenges of who is going to staff these programs and what it's going to look like as far as the number of teachers with students. And there's just so many different questions that we have that really there are no answers to. Um, and when it's basically uh, so many people, uh, so many experts, so many uh, education experts, parenting experts, psychology experts are saying, mm, this is probably not the best idea. Um, it's not great. Uh, and then the other challenges and the other frustration for a lot of teachers right now teaching during the pandemic is we're constantly hearing from the government that schools need to be open. Schools need to be open. Mental health is so important for children. Like right. Schools being closed is so bad for students' mental health and moving teaching online is so bad for mental health. And then two seconds later, the government will say, but we're going to make sure that virtual learning never goes away. And virtual learning is so great. It's so great for students. It's, and so which is it? Like that's, that's the frustrating part for so many people. You know, Jeff, my greatest concern now with the outstanding efforts teachers make and are still making, how do you promote those, like the well-being of those teachers, whether physically, mentally, and emotionally? And like, what motives do teachers need like to proceed efficiently with love and happiness towards the students? And I think that's the toughest part right now. Uh, COVID-19, it's one of those situations where there are so many things that are unknown. Um, where we don't have answers. And being in a classroom where you, really it's, it's as a teacher, it's your classroom and you are, it's your students and it's your program and you have control over so much. But with the pandemic, a lot of us have no control and that's very different for, for teachers and it's hard. And then when you get you you don't know if you're going to be pivoting to online learning next week and you don't know if march break is going to be moved there's just so many things um, and then you also have the the mental health and the wellness you're also dealing with the mental health and wellness of students um, and they call it um, compassion fatigue where you know you're so compassionate and you're worried about your students you go home and you worry about it so much that it creates um, some significant anxiety and depression and your own mental health concerns as an educator because you're worried about everyone else except for yourself. And so you may not be making the best uh, wellness choices for yourself. So, you know, as a, as a federation, as a union representing teachers, um, the one thing that we do, I think better than uh, many of our, like our school boards or the government is we listen and we uh, he hear what the educators are saying, what their concerns are. Um, much more than other groups. And we advocate on their behalf, even if um, you know it's an unpopular uh, opinion out in the public, we advocate because that's what our frontline educators are saying. And so you know if if we have a hundred members reaching out to ask for see what's happening with the vaccine to be able to be vaccinated so they can feel safer into school, we'll advocate for them no matter what the pub general public may think, but it's like, well, this is what needs to happen. So we kind of, uh, become a megaphone for them where they may not have uh, the voice, feel like they have a voice alone to speak, 
together we have more of a voice. Um, and then we also try to do, like, again, as a union, we try to do things, run activities and, and uh, uh, events and stuff that protect their wellness. So we've done everything from yoga nights for our members, for teachers to, um, we did a, we do, we've done a whole bunch of different activities for families. We'd had a, a musician, uh, we did a coffee tasting, we've done an art night online. So it's just those things that, you know, just kind of normalize what's happening and, and things that we normally would have done, we're doing online. Yeah. And then the other thing that I think that teachers really need during this pandemic is that support. And, uh, you know, I love that you started everything off as uh, showing your support for educators. That's really, you know, no teacher got into uh, teaching to complain and to be upset with how things are. We got into teaching because we love kids um, and we want to inspire children and, you know, develop our, our future citizens. It's not about all that other stuff. And unfortunately, so many of the other th stuff, so much of the other stuff gets in the way. So providing them with the support, um, both at a professional level to help them develop some skills, but also support if they are struggling, if they do need to take a leave to support a family member or take a leave to support their own health and their own mental health. We're here to support them to make sure that they're able to do that, that the processes are all fair and that uh, you know they can focus on their job when they're doing their job to the best of their ability. I feel this conversation should never end. As a community member, I'm always curious to find what's going on behind the scenes. It was a great conversation indeed, Jeff. I would like to thank you for joining me today. In the name of Midtown Radio, I would like to thank every educator for being consistent and persistent in their advocacy. I'm really looking forward to see students and educators safely back on campus in an anti-COVID-19 environment. Fingers crossed. Have a great and safe rest of the day. I would like to say thank you to my teacher who is working really hard from home. Welcome back to the May Day special on Midtown Radio. We've had a great day so far, dedicating different programming to the essential workers in our community. And up next, you're going to hear a podcast that comes from the local community, Resilient and Resourced. This podcast comes from Danette Adams, who interviews folks from the community about how to stay strong and resilient during the difficult times in their lives, a message that we can certainly use this year. So here is a segment from the Resilient and Resource podcast, an episode that aired back in March with Dr. Barbara Ward. Enjoy. Welcome to the Resilient and Resourced podcast, where you'll hear conversations with regular but strong-hearted people who explore resilience and discuss the role of resources and connections in their lives. I'm your host, Danette Adams, and on today's episode, Dr. Barbara Ward shares with me her experiences of resilience through a life filled with challenges and triumphs. And she does it with such clarity and insight, from single parenting, to running the Boston Marathon, to defending her PhD. She's had plenty of opportunities to lean into difficult times and to learn from them. Keenly aware of her privilege, Barb is a grounded source of wisdom and encouragement for those looking for resilience within themselves and from external resources. 
So let's get right to the conversation and prepare to be inspired. So I'd like to dive right in and ask you about your relationship to resilience. So this could be historically, this could be the work you're doing now. What do you want to tell me about resilience and youth? Yeah, so I talk a lot about resilience when it comes to children and youth and parents and adults. Uh, in my work, I've been in the social work field for 30 years and, you know, dealt with resiliency a lot, but no one's ever asked me about, uh, you know, my childhood or more personally, my experience res with resiliency. Um, and so, you know, it's interesting to reflect from that perspective. Um, and I'm in my 50s now, and so the era I grew up in and the family culture I grew up in, um, you know, it, resiliency was just... Um, whether it was there or not, it, it just wasn't an option to um, to not have it or, or come from that perspective. Like it wasn't an option to quit. It wasn't an option to complain about something. It, and if you did, it didn't make a difference, <laughs> right? Um, and I, yeah, yeah. And I had four siblings um, and it was kind of a fend for yourself thing. Um, and definitely... Um, a lot of independence in how we lived our lives um, as, as kids, you know, outside playing, we'd be outside all day. I connect that to how I am now today and about my resiliency because it really gave me a lot of um, the ability to like push through with things and, and not really reflect a whole lot on um, how terrible something might feel or how hard it is. You kind of just push through. Now there's down, downsides to that as well. Um, but, and then, and then personally as well, um, I was married at age 19, uh, and then, um, that marriage ended when I had a two-year-old after 15 years. Um, and I was so grateful that I had the resources and supports at that time to move forward in a healthy way. I was a single mom and loved it and thrived, um, thrived throughout that. You knew me uh, for, for part of my life as a single mom, Danette. And, um, yes. and yeah, I felt like, yeah, yeah, it was easier for me to be a single mom um, than to be married. Again, it made you, it made me feel very strong and really resilient to be able to, um, to thrive in that situation and really kind of come into myself um, through that situation. And then of course, being single, I would have, uh, I would do some dating and have some relationships. And uh, th some of those relationships, well, a lot of them uh, up until one now <laughs> didn't work out. Um, but what I, my approach to that is as much as some things hurt or there was a loss or rejection or the, oh my God, now I got to start all over again. Um, I always treasured what I learned from that person and that relationship. There was always something so essential that I felt I took away and I didn't see it as a mistake. I didn't see it as a failure. It was just things that I learned about myself or even things that I, that, um, you know, new things I was exposed to, new foods, new activities, new, uh, new places in the world. And so I've always treasured that. And again, I think that builds resiliency, right? It, you're not stewing in negativity and in regrets. So I think that makes a really yeah. big difference. Yeah. Right. So all those experiences in your past were, were informing what's happening now to make you yeah. more resilient. 
Yeah. And then there were a couple other things. Um, you know, I've always identified as a runner and I've been running for over 40 years. I started quite young and I think running builds resiliency as well. So I had this kind of personal relationship with resiliency through my running and it's still, it's still going on. And sometimes it's, it's testing me more and more these days and we can get into that a bit more later. Um, but there's this, this internal messaging that you have to manage when you're a runner um, about when to stop because of an injury or because you're tired and listening to your body and when to push through. Because if you never ran when it hurt, you'd probably never run, <laughs> you know, like it, it doesn't always feel good. It, it, there is some effort and involved, but it shouldn't hurt, hurt. Um, so I think that running provided a mechanism um, to help me process adverse events in my life and adverse emotions um, just through the, that act of running, but it also helped me to celebrate um, and release positive emotions too, right? So it became a way for me to basically deal with life. And that's amazing. You're leaning on your body's wisdom. So you talked about the internal messaging. It's like your relationship with your body and listening to its wisdom was part of the resilience as well. That's, that's great. Yeah. yeah. It's just interesting right. what... Um, what taxes our personal resources um, right. compared to others, right? You never know. It always has to be that person's story. What they say is the issue for them, mm -hmm. right? As I'm thinking about this pandemic, some people at the beginning, they were fine. And then halfway through, they just felt like they were at their end. Now that we're going further and further, it's that length yeah. of time to, to keep digging in and finding that resilience. Yeah, yeah, and that's a really interesting point. And Michael Unger, who um, is is with Dalhousie University in Halifax, he's a resiliency uh, researcher or a guru, as I like to call him. And he he gave a presentation a few weeks ago about the pandemic and resiliency. And he said, you know, when we when we usually are dealing with um, resilience, when we need to be resilient. It's usually when, um, you know, there's stress in our lives and it, it's, it's there for a while, it comes and goes, but then it, 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 it releases, like it's situational. But what he says ends up happening with the pandemic is that it's always there, right? That, that, um, that stress is always there. So um, it's an issue then that, that kind of we're not used to coping with and needing our resiliency uh, day in, day out like that for going on for a year like it is. So he says, this is a new right. way of coping for all of us. Michael Unger says, in the context of exposure to significant adversity, resiliency is both the capacity of individuals to navigate their way to the psychological, social, cultural, and physical resources that sustain their well-being and their capacity individually and collectively to negotiate for these resources to be provided in culturally meaningful ways. So what he's saying is that, it in, that resiliency isn't just inside of us, it's not just individual, but it's something that also the community collectively that we can impact. So it's about providing ourselves and others with resources and opportunities to help build that resiliency. Now I wonder if you look outside yourself, what resources do you find that are outside of you? Oh my goodness. Um, there's so many, so many. Um, so I have, I have beautiful relationships uh, in my life with my family, um, but I also live in this incredible community. I have lived in Waterloo Region, Ontario, my entire life. And I love to travel, love to leave the city, but this is 
one hell of a city to live in as far as resources and opportunities go. Now, I also know that I am, uh, I'm a white woman and have had um, a, a salary my entire life that has afforded me um, a decent lifestyle. And I acknowledge that that's not there for everybody. So as much as the community has been really good for me, um, the community isn't always good for racialized people or where there's equity differences. And um, I think we as a community, all members of community need to try and make that a difference, right? We need to try and make a difference if that, with that and try and um, kind of eliminate systems that might be creating some of that, those equity differences. So I feel like it's hard for me to talk about some of my own privileges and some of this, you know, this collective um, resiliency that have, has benefited me without acknowledging that some of it was because of my race, right? Um, and, and, and because of my family and the situation I was in there with, you know, being, having lots of resources and opportunities. Um, but I was also a woman too, and so that has um, created situations where I may not have had the same resources and opportunities in my life as if I would have been a male. And so again, I feel like I've been blessed in this community and in my family with having really strong female role models and mentors in my life to help me uh, learn how to move forward um, and how to deal with uh, gender bias in a way without um, further harming the situation. So if you do have any last minute advice that you would give to somebody who is going through this pandemic again, kind of still riding the waves of grief and gratitude and um, really struggling maybe, would you give any advice for them? Yeah, well, following up on what we were just talking about, um, are there any mentors or role models um, who see the potential in you or who you can tap into, even if it's virtually someone online, who can help uh, inspire you um, and help you build strategies or new ways of being to deal with these adversities in your life, right? Can you look at what strategies are they using? Um, what's their mindset and approach? Can you use any of it to generate something that might work for you? Right. There's no shame in copying people when it comes to this. You know, we don't have to we don't have to generate our own our own things, but just look online or look in your family. Look, look, at you know, in the field, who inspires you and how are they approaching a situation or a skill or, you know, something similar that you're dealing with. The other thing is self-compassion and asking, what do I need right now? Right? Just pausing and reflecting, right? The loving kindness practice um, is really valuable for this. And just reminding us that we all do face adversities and that we learn and grow from this. Um, but asking, what do I need right now to help me through this? And how often do we forget to pause and we just keep plowing through, right? We just keep dealing with the distress. We just keep coping and, and you know, trying to, to be enough and find enough without pausing and saying, what do I really need, right? And then also what brings meaning to your life and what, it, what, what gives you a sense of accomplishment and can those be increased, right? So again, those are pathways for resiliency is having that sense of self-efficacy, that sense of accomplishment and doing things that bring you meaning. I want to thank you for everything that you've said today. I've been um, so inspired by the storing up, like that's well, that was a new one to me, storing up the resilience. The self-care buckets is also something that I have been since we talked last 
been working on um, taking care of. Um, and then the advice you've just given here now about reaching out for meaning, reaching out to others who inspire you. I am so grateful uh, for your inspiration. So I just want to thank you so much for being here and for sharing your story with us. This is Danielle DeVoe from Midtown Radio, and I am chatting with Alex from Wilfrid Laurier University and Grayson from Conestoga College. These are two undergraduate students living in the region um, who have had one of those experiences of post-secondary during the pandemic where everything is odd, everything is online. But then, of course, like many students, they also have jobs. And, and as tends to be, those jobs are in public-facing uh, sectors. So I'm interested in hearing their perspectives on what their experiences as being as essential workers, as being working in the service industry, working in jobs where you can't simply work from home, and, and how their experience of, of school and working has really um, um, been unique because of the pandemic. So Alex, Grayson, thanks so much for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. So Alex, I'll start with you because it, we actually already recorded an interview talking about the fact that you work in a drugstore a year ago, March, 2020. <laughs> oh, we yes. were at the Kitchener Public Library. We had you on for Midtown Conversations. It was a Wednesday night. We recorded an interview because at that time it was before we had gone into lockdown, um, but it was during the great toilet paper shortage panic buy. And so we yes. were chatting, we were being very uh, lighthearted about it, chatting about the ridiculousness <laughs> of the toilet paper situation. But our listeners will have never heard that interview, because by the next day, uh, the situation had gotten significantly worse. And we oh, were yeah. facing lockdown, more people were getting really sick, more people were dying. And we realized that our flippant little toilet paper interview was potentially not appropriate anymore because the stakes had gotten so much higher. What was it initially like when people were starting to go to the stores? Oh my god. I think that interview too was like the day after they declared it a pandemic, but not like, you know, lockdowns yet. Like school wasn't online yet. Um but god, yeah, that aged so horribly so quickly. Um <laughs> but yeah, like early on in the pandemic, it was like absolute pandemonium like it was like working like 17 black fridays all in one you know like <laughs> i don't know why like i don't know how people saw an impending lockdown as like absolutely everything shutting down and you know like essential services don't exist anymore but god yeah the early days of the pandemic were just absolutely insane for like everybody too and like you couldn't find any ppe so like you know it was just like Working felt a lot like just a gamble <laughs> at that point. Cause like, we didn't know what we were dealing with. Like we knew like, all right, maybe stay six feet away from other people. And like, that's all we were really know, knew at that time. Right. So like, it was just so insanely busy. Like nobody knew what to do. Uh, that time felt extremely, extremely disorganized. Yeah. Yeah. And so how, how can you take us through your, your PPE at work uh, timeline? So 
um, initially? What what were you advised to do? But you know, before before it was um, officially recommended that people wear masks. Yeah. Up to you know, and you're just hand washing your hands raw, I guess, and hand sanitizing yeah. your hands raw. So oh, what, yeah. over the course of the year, how has the the formal uh, protection that you're required to wear at work changed? So I think that changed in July or no, in June, because I remember I took a couple of, I took a weekend off for my wedding. And then when I got back, uh, you know, PPE was there and we were wearing masks doing all that. So yeah, it wasn't until June that we actually got masks and that we were like required to wear them. But even then it wasn't like, like, I don't think there was a mask mandate. So customers didn't have to wear them. So, you know, it was kind of just like, you know, it, it was a weird, weird time. Um, I actually just saw uh, like a note that was posted in the break room, um, like probably early March last year that just never got taken down. And its advice was like, avoid contact with sick people when you are sick. And that was like it. <laughs> and that was all, all we had then, right? Yeah, well, when I think about when I was in undergrad and how sick I was when I went to Toys R Us where I was working and touched people's stuff and but oh, just yeah. still went and it that just seems horrific now, of course, because we have <laughs> such more stringent measures um, yeah. and your store. I mean, of course, you work in a, a large chain that that mm -hmm. sells a lot of different things. Are there restrictions on what people can buy because of the essential versus non-essential goods or are drugstores sort of, you don't have to stop people from buying things? Yeah, so I was a little surprised by that too. Um, but yeah, essentially because we're considered a pharmacy, like legally, we don't need to restrict anything, which seems kind of unfair, but like mm -hmm. at the same time, you know, that's so far out of like, <laughs> yeah, people way higher up than me in the company make that decision, so. You know, well, other people make the decision, but if someone can't buy something that they want, you're the one who gets yelled at. So. Yes. Oh, that's the other thing, though. So I'll give it that. And it's like either way, you kind of get yelled at because it's like if somebody comes in and sees they can buy whatever they want, they're like, oh, well, this isn't fair. Like, <laughs> I shouldn't be able to do this. And they get all mad about it. But if somebody can't buy it, they get mad about it. There's no winning with it. Like, you know, do you feel like customers are, um, since the pandemic, um, apart from the initial, everyone's mad that they can't get toilet paper and hand sanitizer, mm -hmm. are people tending to be more patient and more kind, or do you still feel like tensions are high? Like, do you get a lot of abuse from customers um, it was, now? It was kind of like a bell curve almost, you know, first wave, panic buying, everybody was pissy, everybody was mad. Um, second wave, it was like the most patient people I've ever encountered. But then now everybody's gone back to just being mad and grumpy and impatient. <laughs> yeah, which yeah. is, you know, the plight of the essential worker. You're out there every day, whether people are going to be nice to you about it or not. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm going to get back to you talking about your your experience of the summer and uh, getting married and, and all of the complication with that. But I want to bring Grayson into the conversation now because Grayson is also... An undergraduate student also works um, in uh, people-facing uh, roles. And also, uh, Grayson, because she is in business, uh, ha is in a co-op program and has had now not one, but two co-op cycles uh, through the pandemic. So last spring, April, 
you're applying for co-op positions. Can you take us through the experience of being in a lockdown with companies downsizing, trying to find a co-op job? Oh yeah, it was definitely a unique experience. And one thing that I will say that I appreciate is that the college definitely made us aware that it wasn't our fault that we weren't getting jobs right away and that we weren't hearing back from companies. That was mostly just to do with the pandemic, which was really nice that they were comforting about it, but it did not feel great when you had applied to over 40, 50 positions and just weren't hearing back from anyone. And all your peers were going through essentially the same thing too, because like you said, most people were either downsizing or laying people off. So they weren't really looking for additional support at that point. So my co-op term was supposed to start um, early May uh, last year in 2020. And because of everything that was going on, I didn't hear about getting a job till about mid to late May, which was much later than I had intended. So, of course, it was all much more rushed. And the school accommodated for doing like less hours during the summer, which was nice for them to do as well. But it was just a very stressful kind of experience because you really had to take what you could get job wise. You weren't you couldn't be very picky. And of course, with people wanting to work from home as well. We didn't really have the option to pick if we wanted that or not. Now, this year, it's a lot different. There's a lot more jobs offering work from home. But uh, last year, it was definitely more, I think, them looking for people willing to work in the workplace. <laughs> well, and before our listeners are too sympathetic about Grayson's plight that she didn't find a co-op job until late May, um, what did you end up doing? So I did end up getting a job offer and it was a pretty sweet deal. I got offered a position in Muskoka, Ontario, which was beautiful. I ended up getting to live there for a few months in the summer and that's where I'm going back again this year. Uh, I worked as the uh, night audit, so uh, accounting work, and I'm doing the same kind of position this year as well. So I was pretty lucky. I was one of the few out of the of my group of friends who did land a job last minute and it ended up being a really good one. So that worked out well. Yeah, and and I think people, I mean, we're seeing a lot from, say, the Atlantic provinces who require so much. Uh, the tourist industry is such a significant part of their economy. And you are working in tourism as well in Muskoka. You work at a resort. And, but it seems like in Ontario, all of those tourist places are have not been hard hit by the pandemic necessarily, that actually people are so desperate to, to go that you know, the, it sounds like your resort still had a great summer and they're hiring again and people are expected to go back to Muskoka. Was that your experience? Oh, definitely. We actually had a few people too. Uh, the time when we started getting nervous was when we would see people who had come from the state to come stay at the hotel. That was really like an eye opener to us. That was when we realized that the restrictions were really nitpicky for what they were closing and what they we're still letting people do. So we had a few people come from the States and we had a lot of people coming in from Toronto as well, which was just kind of a little nerve wracking because of course it's more spacious out there. You have more room and you're outside a lot more, but also if there's a lot of people coming from really big cities, it can get a little weary. <laughs> so, you know, how, I mean, you were the night audit, so you didn't have that many direct interactions um, unless people, someone was coming late at night, which would be rare. Um, but did you still feel, you know, given that you're in an environment where there are people coming from all over, did you feel like there, there was heightened risk in terms of the work that you were doing? Oh, definitely. Um, there was actually um, 
I can't remember right now the name of the resort, but there was a resort about half an hour away that actually had an outbreak there while we were working. And it was about a month in, I'd say. Uh, so in late June, early July uh, was when they had their outbreak. So that's when uh, me and my friends started to get pretty nervous about it. And we would be careful, like we stayed within our own friend circle and we wouldn't mingle too much with other people unless it was outdoors. So we would kind of be wary in that aspect and a lot of customers as well they were still in the era of not agreeing with masks and as it was early on when they were uh emplacing the mandated mask order so a lot of people were just against it and they chose not to and there wasn't a whole lot in our hands that we could do regarding that so we were definitely nervous i'd say but we worked around it eventually and made everything work out <laughs> So how do you think that your experience uh, last year to this year is going to be different? Do you think that people will be coming with a different attitude and different concerns about safety? Uh, I definitely do. I know uh, staff-wise, they've already told us that they're going to put a lot more uh, strict guidelines in place for us. So this year differs that we're actually going to be uh, rooming in pairs of two, whereas last year we were in single housing. But this year they're actually doing roommates. But because of that, we are not allowed any visitors at the resort, like no family or anything come by. So that's a big change that I think was an interesting take. But I mean, anything to keep us all safer and more spread out. Uh, and guest wise, I'm hoping, fingers crossed, that people are more uh, towards wearing masks and are more understanding about the pandemic as we've all been through it for a year now, whereas last year we were still kind of at the beginning and everyone was still kind of grasping what was going on. But this year, I think people will have a better understanding that they actually have to wear their masks. They actually have to distance from us. And it's not only for our safety, but it's also for theirs and everyone around us. So yeah, and so, and Grayson, you also, you were working uh, in a restaurant as well, uh, or, and then the pandemic, of course, it shut down, and then you had ended up deciding not to go back. Do you, do you feel like, did you miss some of that, that the social atmosphere of working uh, in a restaurant, or you know, do, do you imagine yourself going back, or did the pandemic basically just, that was it, those were your years, and maybe you're not going to end up back there? Um, again, as Alex said, I think that was probably one of the aspects that was kind of a blessing in disguise for me. It was kind of a job that I was coming near the end of anyways. But again, like you said as well, the social aspect, I really did miss out on. It was hard to all of a sudden not see any of my friends again from the job, of course. And it was really difficult to have to tell myself that it wasn't realistic to go back and it wasn't safe to go back. So that was disappointing, but as well, it, it was kind of the end of my term there anyways. So it probably was the best for my own self, as well as seeing how restaurants have been working during COVID as well, seeing as they've been closed often or just having to shut down just to take out. So I think regardless, my amount of hours and stuff there would have been minimal. So it wouldn't have been the most useful to stay, but it was still disappointing in the end to have to actually leave. Well, I wish both of you luck in your summer employment out there amongst the people. Hopefully there won't be any nose out of their mask wearers. <laughs> and I hope that you're able to stay safe this summer. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Thank you. <laughs>
I've been chatting with Grayson from Conestoga College and Alex from Wilfrid Laurier University. Both work uh, in industries where they meet the public regularly and have experienced uh, some pandemic milestones uh, in 2020-2021. Stay tuned for more of our May Day special. I'm feeling that high hopes, happy place. No time for haters when the right folks take the reins. Make no mistake, worry can wait. I take a heel to any snake who would rattle me out of my mood today. So what you talking about? Nothing matters anymore. Why you keep breathing for? On a visceral level, you know there's reason to leave the floor. Let's find the bits of peace amid the war. I'm thinking about people that I love that I'll see today Maybe we'll break bread and watch some TV today Oh, you feel that freedom, eh? You wake up and you only see the cage Well, I see the key I see linear time stretched to the nth degree I see back when the earth was green And when we first developed lungs to breathe Summertime and the living was easy Summertime and the living was easy, yeah Well, I don't mean to get esoteric When there's fresh wounds we as a people need to take care of but taste a little possible brace for the onslaught And it's not your fault if you need to process anger to get to love The happy place ain't a drive through The happy place can't find you until the time is true But when it hits, boy, you know just as well as I do Shout that shit from the rooftops, joy is a viral kind of mood So if you can't stand the heat, open the freezer door And if you land in hot water, make it a cannonball We can hold all these emotions at once, it's incredible When the world tosses you lemons, pretend that they're edible Yeah, I'm feeling that High hopes, happy place No time for haters when the right folks take the reins Make no mistake, worry can wait I take a heel to any snake who would rattle me out of my mood today Yeah, it could hit you on your walk home It could hit you like heat hits popcorn out of your shell, don't repress the rest of your show and tell Be yourself, don't worry how long you should talk for I know I've hit my happy place when I feel like Making conversation with everyone in the elevator Get the moment while it feels right Tell your doubt that you're busy, call back later It's a different flavor of life, I play with that savory spice Catch the wave as it rises, as long as I can stay upright Happy ain't transactional, I'm not paying a price Sometimes it's nice just to lean into lightness When I'm in, I can be more decisive Lead with my eyes wide open with love for the lifeless I'm not always like this I make my share of tight fists, crinkle my eyelids Society's not where I'd like it to be All the hurt in the world's piped right to my screen And all the victories seems so tiny to me and i remind myself to breathe through the grief it's okay to go through sadness to feel free so if you can't stand the heat open the freezer door and if you land in hot water make it a cannonball we can hold all these emotions at once it's incredible when the world tosses you lemons pretend that they're edible yeah i'm feeling that high hopes happy place no time for haters when the right folks take the reins make no mistake worry can wait i take a heel to any snake who would rattle me out of Thank you, essential workers, for helping us keep on going while during COVID. Bye. All right, everyone. Welcome back to the May Day special on Midtown Radio, all dedicated to essential workers and how our Kitchener-Waterloo community has been dealing with this pandemic for the last year. Up next, we're going to hear another podcast from the local community. This one comes to us from Scott Kemp, and it's called 
the City I Call Home podcast. Scott's podcast features interviews with various residents of Kitchener, and Scott has put together two episodes he aired last year that featured essential workers. So up next, let's hear Scott's conversations with Fish and Sam Nabby. Enjoy. I would like to say thank you to all doctors and nurses who helped my grandpa when he had COVID. Without you, it would have been impossible. Hi, I'm Scott. I'm the host of a little podcast called The City I Call Home. The premise of the podcast is simple. The easiest way to get to know a city is by getting to know its people. And so every Friday I sit down for a conversation with a resident of Kitchener. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today, as a little sample, I sit down with two essential workers from Kitchener. One, Fish, is a garbage man who loves the role he plays in the community. The second is Sam Nabby, one of the owners and operators of Full Circle Foods, a grocery store in downtown Kitchener. Both of them share their story and the essential work they do to make our city great. Full episodes with these guests are now available. And now, here's Fish. Yeah, so like, I've been hauling trash since I was 19. I've done a lot of different jobs, but this is really the first thing that's been like, okay, like I wake up every day and say, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to interface with my community. I'm going to pick up trash and be you know what I mean? Like valuable to the community and we're just gonna get it done. You get to work with great people. I love that I'm I'm having an opportunity to talk to you because I'm sure the job itself is probably, there's a, an element that's monotonous, but on the same token, it's probably fairly interesting. Well, yeah, that's it exactly. Right? Like, yeah, it's that you're doing the same thing every day, but it's a different day because you're in a different area, even if it like, you have your routes the same every week, so right. you're in the, but you're in the same area, but something different is happening every week. You know, maybe there's construction, you know, maybe these people came out that didn't come out last week. You get to talk to them right? Or whatever it might be, right? Like Now, I, do you find when you do get to actually talk with people while you're, while you're working, do you find overwhelmingly positive, friendly, or are they dismissive, ignore you? Oh no, the community's great. Like, sure, there's people who have their issues, but I mean, like, even like as a garbage man, like I have my issues with my own garbage man. You know, no one's yeah. perfect. Yeah. And when you're collecting that many houses, like, there's gonna be people who are unfortunately left unsatisfied. But you know, hopefully the next week you can make those people happy, and you do your best not to leave anyone out. But as far as positive right. things, like, you know, people bring their kids out. And you get to, you know, show the kids the truck and how it works. And you get to talk to the parents and just find out about what's going on. You know, I've talked to a lot of small business owners. Oh, that's interesting. Really, that's really cool when you get to hear about, you know, someone who's actually running a business and also helping out the community in a way, their own way. I, I love the idea of the kids. Do you, do you, does it happen often? Oh, yeah. Like, you know, even when I was a kid, you know, I'm sure even when you were a kid, you know, pumping your arm up and down to those truck drivers. Yeah, absolutely. That horn, you know, it's not lost on these kids. It's great. 
That's so wonderful. Now, do you notice, I'm just curious, do you notice a difference in what people are throwing out between areas? Oh, yeah. Like, no one knows you better than your garbage man, whether you realize it or not. Like, I've seen everything from, you know, just there's a lot of waste is unfortunately what really comes to my mind. Like there's a lot of people's houses where it looks like they just took the fridge and just put it in there. Like just, you know, <laughs> condiments and, you know, jarred things. Oh, really? Eh? You know, and they're not even open, you know, it just went bad sitting there. Oh yeah. Like it'd be crazy how much, uh, how much stuff that should be in your green bin, right? It's in your garbage. Is that, is the use of the green bin kind of like less than you would imagine? No, like, I'll be honest. Or is it a pretty good pickup? Like, like I said, I've collected it all over the province from down here all the way up to, like, the Winds area. And it's pretty consistent all around. Like, people like to use it. But, you know, I think it's really just a lack of education, right? Like, people don't think it's going to matter that much, right? Like, oh, you know, my neighbor's doing it. So if, if I don't do it or, you know, if you're only using it a little bit, right? Yeah. Use it for everything that could go in there. That could be a Uh, big problem too, right? Yeah, that's probably, yeah, very true. At the end of a day, you must be just exhausted. Well, to be honest, like the first three months, like I always tell people, because it's such a high turnover rate, you always got people coming in and out. But if you could get through that first three months, and I tell this to the new guys, you're going to be exhausted every day. You're going to come home, you go eat your dinner shower go right to bed and it's gonna be your life for about three months but once you get that your body toned up and you're used to it like i have nights where i'm getting like six hours of sleep and it's fine right like i feel like I really got oh yeah because you, you as long as you gotta stretch right people don't stretch and that's really the problem like, if you want longevity like, i won't be doing this as long as i can right and it's like if you stretch you just take care of yourself then it's really not that hard it's like any other kind of physical job like i've done construction and yeah i have friends who are roofers and i would say stuff like that is like way more demanding right interesting because once you once you're not a like when you're a rookie you you make the mistake of you're doing a lot of the work yourself and by that i mean like when you're on the kind of garbage truck where it's on the back like i've done that but i, I work on like a one-man truck right now Okay. So, so I drive and I load by myself. So it's a little different, but it's really just making the truck work for you, right? Instead right. Of you. So like you want the truck to move you. You just right. want to get out, put the stuff in, and then you want to get in and move. And pe- people will walk from one house to the next. It's not that big of a deal, right? A driveway. But you do that, add that up 1,200 times. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're going to be exhausted. But you just get on. It's really just up and down off that step, right? Yeah. It's, it's like lunges every, like over and over. Yeah, so you get your legs get ripped. <laughs> yeah, great. I would imagine. You wouldn't need to go work out or hit the gym or anything like that. Well, you don't need to, but you know, I like to think of that as conditioning. And then yeah. you, could get, you, you don't want to ever kind of fall out of compliance, right? Thinking like, oh, you know, I work so hard here. But it's like if you, you're not really getting strength, like a little right. bit, but you're, you're getting your arms. So the rest right. of your, your legs, but what about your core? It's not, it's not bad and the hours yeah. are there. So you make a great paycheck, but it's hard right. work. Right. But and so what, what got you started? 
just looking for work. Like yeah. I was on Indeed and just seeing the garbage man. I was like, that sounds like something I would be interested in doing. And then once I got in there, I was a loader for a year. I went and got my commercial license and now I do both. Like there's people I, I, I see every week, like parents who are staying with their kids every morning. Right. Like that school bus, you go by and you wave because you run it the same every every week, right? So. I, I, I find that so interesting in terms of like, you really do get into this, the rhythm of the community, the rhythm of the, of the city. There was this lady and she was an elderly lady and she was unfortunately not all there, like um, maybe dementia or something, I don't know. I didn't get to talk to the paramedics, but she fell down. Oh, I wow. thought she was going to get a bin to bring it up to the house, right? And she just fell on the ground. I had to call for the police and the ambulance, right? So they got wow. that squared away. But you know what I mean? Like, ho hopefully someone else was, you know, people are always watching out their windows when you're going by. Right. But it's just, it's just happened to work out, you know what I mean? She got back from, up, but that's uh, like those moments where you got to just respond and jump in, and yeah, it's really something like you're not expecting it, right? Yeah. Did you notice a change in people's garbage through the pandemic? Yeah, totally. Like, there's definitely way more. Really, eh? Yeah, the recycling is way up, so that's great. Even my own personal, you know, I, I notice a lot more stuff coming in the mail, like Amazon and everything. Like, Yeah, that's so interesting. It, these pieces of infrastructure, that's so fundamental to the way our city runs. Well, like, honestly, the I got told the whole time I was in high school, like, oh, you need to go straight to university or straight to college. And it's like, that's not really the case. Like I have friends who went forty, sixty thousand yeah. $60,000 in the debt within my own family. Like people look at me as less successful because I'm not college educated, even though like I'm doing well for myself and I'm serving my community. Like, right. We've really lost that focus on putting people into the, you don't need to be a banker or a doctor. You know, we need garbage men. We need plumbers. We need electricians. I think it is easy to overlook some of those, those elements of, you know, it's, it's a very reasonable, good job that you can go and do. Sure. It might be hard, uh, but it's rewarding in its own way. Yeah, where are you going to take it, right? You can go do garbage for a year, two years, five years, and then go and right. drive truck for any other kind of commercial vehicle, you know? like Right. You can go upgrade and get an AZA license, do long-haul trucking. Like My favorite coworker I ever worked with, he is like 60 or like 58 or something like that, and he could put me on the floor. Like he could out, Really? He could outpick me any day of the week. He's just in such great shape. My full conversation with Fish is now available. And now, here's Sam. Mm -hmm. Now, you own, uh, you own the uh, Full Circle Foods? Yeah, together with my partner, Julia, we're, we're both the owners of Full Circle. Um, we're the fourth owners to have uh, been a part of that place. So it's, it's got a long history in downtown Kitchener. It's been around since 1981. Uh -huh. And so um, I have to ask, like, how is it going through this period of the world uh, running a small business and, and a, a small grocery store, really? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, uh, yeah, during lockdown number three, where we are still, <laughs> we're still doing okay. You know, there, there's still uh, people that, that need their 
their groceries every week. And we do really provide um, a unique uh, offering in downtown Kitchener. Like the, one of the big parts about our store that some people don't realize is the bulk section. So yeah. the closest bulk food store other than us would be up in Waterloo or maybe the, the same distance south in, in another neighborhood of Kitchener where the bulk barns are. But, uh, but yeah, like we, we have a quite a large bulk food section, uh, fresh produce, general groceries, and uh, a small supplements area. And like we really transitioned the store. There's a lot of products that used to be only org- organic and, and expensive. And now maybe we offer a couple different versions that are more accessible in the price range. So uh, we're, we're really trying to meet the needs of people that are downtown. The meaning of essential, like we never doubted for a moment that we were essential. Right. Um, and that we know that there, there's people who, who rely on us, but it's also the value of having a place in your neighborhood that's walking distance. And, and those are the people that we're serving. Right. So how did you, how did you get into the grocery business? Is this something that, you know, you, you were dreaming of one day I'm going to own a grocery store or is it just fall in your lap or. Yeah. So I have a background in urban planning. Oh, okay. um, that's, that's what I went to school for at the university of Waterloo. And I was always the person on the government side of the counter saying whether something should be built or not and saying whether a business should be able to expand or not or whether it should be uh, in this location or whether that was appropriate for the neighborhood. Um, and I, I really enjoyed that. I thought I, 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 uh, uh, I made a, a difference in, in neighborhoods and um, there was a positive plan in place and I was one of the team that was, that was helping to make that plan come to life. But right. I was dealing every day with business owners and developers that were actually doing the things in the neighborhoods. Right. Right. So I got the opportunity together with Julia to, to purchase full circle basically because um, the old owners were retiring right. and they posted a sign on the community board, on the bulletin board that just was handwritten. It said, we're retiring. We want to sell the store. And it, it took a few months of, going back and forth with the idea but when that opportunity presented itself we were like you know what this is something we could really enjoy doing and um i came at it from the government urban planning side of things where i wanted to be part of making a neighborhood more vibrant and bringing food to what some people would consider a food desert which is downtown kitchener yeah um and Julia has a background in healthcare, uh, so she worked at the hospital doing uh, cancer trials. I mean, it's so interesting because you're right. I, like the downtown, uh, you you know, you refer to it as a food desert, and that's uh, always been something that I think is it needs to be addressed. If you have to be traveling outside of your neighborhood all the time to get food, um, that's going to that's going to have a, an impact on on how you relate to your neighborhood. In most small communities, you think of your grocery store as a hub of a community. Yeah, and that's really what we want to identify as, is as a grocery store. And it it took a a bit of a transition over the course of a year or so to really not call ourselves a health food store. Yeah. And and to put a separation between that. And and there's some, some kind of I don't know, there's maybe some boring behind the scenes stuff that, that goes along with that. It, it means you're getting connected with different kinds of vendors and suppliers. And the, it's, it's night and day. Like, 
um, how those different industry groups communicate right. and, and who they think your intended customer is. Um, with, with the Health Food Association, there's so much like fad diet promotion right. and, and just kind of hype and marketing and right. we want to be something that's there, that's reliable, that's, that's meeting a, a basic need in the community. Um, and how, because you're right on uh, Queen and uh, Charles. Um, so what does the addition of the ION, uh, has, have you noticed a big difference in, in traffic? And Yeah, it's really convenient that there's a, a ION stop right there. So at Queen Station uh, is half a block away from, from yeah. where our store is. Yeah. But uh, there was kind of two things that happened in opposite uh, opposite pressures. So we got the ion station, but then we lost the bus terminal. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So those two kind of canceled each other out. Oh yeah. Okay. That, that site is a huge block. Like if you look at it oh, in yeah. comparison to the rest of downtown, like it is big. And um, yeah, the, the region owns that property. So the regional government, fun fact, the city of Kitchener used to own it because it used to be city of Kitchener transit. Okay. And then they, they amalgamated the transit agencies, right? There used to be Cambridge and Kitchener, I believe Waterloo didn't have its own. Um, oh, wow. but, but when they did that change, um, the city sold the property to the region for $1. And, uh, now the region is redeveloping it and <laughs> they're probably going to make a lot more than $1 from it. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> Like that's because that's prime real estate. Yeah. So I, I think there's probably some uh, some people that at the city of Kitchener that that are thinking, hmm, you know, maybe they should kick kick back some of these benefits to yeah, us. Yeah, you think. And, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I mean, one of the projects that I've been involved with that I that I'm very proud of uh, is getting the community together for. Um, making Gockle Street a pedestrian street. Yes, okay. And that's the road that that is uh, right next to the transit terminal there. So actually the closure of the transit terminal was one of the factors that really helped this thing happen. So because the buses were not coming in and out of there anymore, right. there's not a lot of traffic on the street. And then also there's construction happening on the other half of the street. So it was really just one block from Charles to the park. Yes. And, uh, and yeah, I was able to use my status as a business owner to talk to other businesses and say, hey, like, wouldn't it be great if there was more outdoor dining space for people to maybe grab some takeout and, and uh, you know, go sit on the patio? And this was pre-COVID. This was just right. thinking about restaurant, restaurants that maybe didn't have patios. Cafe Pyrus was really into the idea because they don't have an outdoor dining area. Right. Um, or they didn't. They didn't at their uh, at their <laughs> other location. Um, they've moved since, but you know, I, I got to talk with business owners who were into the idea. I got to talk with with uh, artists and musicians that had a, a good things to say about having that that space as a as a performance space or as an arts space. And um, anyway, the the fact that the bus terminal was not there was a really good. Uh, catalyst for for us to convince the city to say you know what this space could be really better used right. if it was blocked off to cars and you open it up to people the 
full conversation with Sam is available now. My thanks to both Fish and Sam for being a guest on the podcast. If you live in Kitchener and would like to be a guest, please send me an email at scott at thecityicallhome.com. You can subscribe and catch new episodes each Friday. Until next time, get outside and say hi. Hi, I Ellie. Thank you. Hello, everyone. This is Maya from Midtown Conversations. The reopening of childcare in Ontario during the pandemic has brought many challenges and concerns for educators. The Association of Early Childhood Educators, Ontario, AECEO, are working to give a voice to the collective sector. ECEs are essential workers who never took a break when the stay-at-home order was issued. They have been putting their lives and families at risk. Why? In order to take care of your little ones and promote their well-being. In return, why is their role and voice underscored? How is their physical and mental health enhanced during these challenging times? How can we support their sense of well-being to keep on going? All these concerns will be discussed today with Aaron Fulby. Aaron is a proud registered early childhood educator and the community organizer at the AECEO. She has the privilege of helping educators come together and find their own advocacy power. Welcome, Aaron, to Midtown Conversations. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's our pleasure, actually, to have you uh, in Midtown Conversations. You know, to start with, Aaron, I know it has been an unpredictable year for ECEs who are thriving to persist in their mission. And again, I would like to give a heads up for the extraordinary job they're doing, looking after children, disinfecting, dealing with parents. What are the major challenges that ECEs are going through during these times? That's a great question, Maya. Um, I think the unpredictable is really a key word here. Since the start of the pandemic, there have been uh, there have been huge changes for ECEs uh, in in their general work, uh, in the work that they're allowed to do with small children, and in the kind of regulations and the rules that they're facing. Um, they've been really unpredictable, and they've felt like they've changed every few minutes. But what's really interesting to me is how adaptable ECEs have have been to those changes. You know, they're still doing incredible work with small children. They're still building relationships and, you know, creating a safe world for tiny children. Right. So they're adapting and their resilience is amazing. I just wish that they didn't have to be because resilience comes from trauma. And I wish that they were being seen. I think really more than the, the adaptions that they've had to make, the challenges that ECs are facing and have faced this year come from the fact that they don't feel recognized. They don't feel recognized by the government uh, and, and they don't feel recognized at, with their expertise being recognized when decisions are being made. So they know what they need and they know what's best and they're being ignored and they find that I think folks are finding that really, really hard to not feel seen. You're right. And, you know, like continuously public health changes the guidelines and measures. Yeah. I think that's the most frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> so like it seems frustrating also when addressing parents, right? Mm-hmm. So I remember at the, at the start of the pandemic, any child with a minor symptom like runny nose 
had to be sent home and get a COVID test before returning back. And then it was okay, as long as it's a minor symptom, they can stay like without having a COVID test. And again, now we went back to the first stage of sending home with minor symptoms. So to start with, if you can briefly discuss those policy changes since March, 2020, and like, how did these policies cause some, I don't know, maybe frustration or what did the addressing parents look like with those policy yeah. changes? Yeah, I, you know, that's another really good question. I think that I think that you, you described quite well uh, the policy changes around symptoms um, that the ECs have had to deal with. Um, really, it's not even so much the policy changes that are the problem because uh, it's one of those things, ECs are extraordinarily adaptable and can and can change based on what's, uh, they can change their whole practice based on what's appropriate for an individual child. So they're able to, to cope with those kind of changes, even if those changes are difficult. I think what's difficult is dealing with the, the frustration of, uh, of, of scared parents right and the emotional burden of that that it's not um they understand why why parents are frustrated and why they are afraid you know if a parent doesn't have paid sick days and to take for off with their sick child then that can mean the difference between you know groceries or rent money so they understand and the what it's like um, for families um, and have been really carrying that emotional burden of parents um, for them and of their own emotional burden you know with those changes and, and fear and dealing with their own symptoms so I think really the for the most part I think there's an understanding um, uh, of the frustrations of families but carrying that emotional burden for such a long time, it's been more than a year right. of carrying that carrying that burden, um, I think has had a really huge impact. Even if we don't see it every day, it's a weight that they've carried and has, has I think, certainly impacted the, the well-being, the mental well-being of the sector. I know that educators are adaptable and like they're always mm-hmm. trying to adapt to all the changes going around, but... Do you feel like there is an overall uh, impact on the on their performance in a way or another? Like we can understand how how adapt adaptable they are, but do you think will that ever affect their overall performance in dealing with children, or that doesn't have any impact? You know, I I, I think that's a really great question. And I when I was uh, when I was working in the field myself, I would sometimes come home and feel like I had nothing left to give to my own family. And I think for lots of educators, uh, particularly this year, have been, have been so focused on doing good work and on, on providing great care that they come home with nothing left. Nothing left for themselves, you know, nothing left for their families. Uh, barely able to flop down in front on a couch and and you know watch Netflix there's not there's no <laughs> I <you> agree know, <laughs> no there's no leftover capacity for them so and and well that's not sustainable you know I think that that when people are weary right down to their soul 
eventually, yes, it does have an impact on the work that they can do. Um, and and in, the, in the long term, it's not sustainable to stay in the profession if you are if you are kind of constantly feeling that, that there's nothing left. And that's another that's another real worry. Um, You're right. Public health asks all individuals to self-assess for any mm. symptom before going to work. Do you agree? <laughs> <laughs> Educators will need to self-isolate or go for a COVID test in case they show any symptom. Yeah. And at the same time, the teacher involuntarily has to worry about physically being unwell or for taking a sick leave. So to start with, how are ECEs dealing with this overwhelming request, though their health is a right and a priority? And how are child centers dealing with it as well? Right. I, th I think this is a really good question. It's a really insightful question because... You know, we know that we know that the issue of paid sick leave is hugely important. We know that lots of early childhood educators don't have any paid sick leave, um, and in places where in places where they don't have paid sick leave, they um, you know they are forced into these situations where they where they you know can't take care of themselves, and that has been that has been the case much much before the pandemic it's always right. you know, it's it's always been the case i think that um in in places where there is no paid sick leave for early childhood educators it's a problem that's gotten worse um but it's also an ethical problem you know eces we have uh we have an ethical we have ethical um expectations as part of our re registered profession um and I know most ECUs take that incredibly seriously. So there's that ethical expectation. There's that there's that knowledge that your you know your room full of tiny people are counting on you, and their families are counting on you. Um, so that's a huge that's a huge pressure. Um, and then there's the financial aspect. Um, so you, you really kind of captured those in the question. Those are all huge pressures on ECUs. I think that uh, the kind of ethical responsibility of ECEs to protect their, um, to protect the children in their care has had a huge impact when they're, when they are, you know, facing symptoms. Um, I think they are often taking the time off, even if it's unpaid and doing the best they can because they feel that obligation to protect other people. Um, but it shouldn't be like that. You know, right. <laughs> it shouldn't be, that shouldn't be the case. I know that, you know, since the start of the pandemic, when so much of the workforce was, was laid off overnight, people have become relatively comfortable at uh, applying for CERB or applying for, um, for financial aid from the federal government. So when they can do that, they do. But often if you're waiting for, waiting for a, a COVID test to come back, you know, positive or negative, those days might not be covered. So it's, it's an incredibly difficult situation. And I think that ECEs, because they always do, uh, are doing their best to make the best moral and ethical choices they can, um, but it's not easy. And paid sick days would have such an impact on, on our workforce, just a huge impact on our workforce. I believe it's so like dismotivating and already like the ECEs are, were already complaining before even uh, the pandemic about like the wages and the low wages. And now yeah. we have this pandemic with 
with as you, as you said, uh, said the ethical part of, of we have to like to protect the children at the same time and also we need the money right yeah absolutely you know educators are educators wages are not reflective of the work that they do and they've never been reflective of the work that they do and and to have so many people living you know and and women let's be let's be clear it's it's women it's uh it's racialized women who are living um paycheck to paycheck because yeah. because their paychecks don't reflect reflect the value of the work they do and that has not gotten any better with the pandemic you're right you know with all the outstanding efforts teachers make and are still making how do you as the AECEO promote the teachers well-being physically mentally and emotionally and uh, what motives do teachers need to proceed efficiently with all the love and happiness they give to our children? Right, that's such a great question. I think that I, I think that the work that I do as a community organizer is uh, it's a huge privilege um, because the best part of the work I get to do is bringing ECEs together, um, and we know that when people when people are able to communicate with somebody who understands what they're going through, when they're able to find their, their, their people, <laughs> the, the folks who understand, uh, understand the work, the importance to them, um, and who are able to talk uh, freely and with empathy to other educators, that we've heard from folks who are able to do that, that it's been really life-changing for them. And, one of the ways that we do that is we organize communities of practice in various different parts of the province. Our communities of practice are an opportunity for educators to come together and to talk and to advocate for themselves, to learn new skills, though that's not the focus. The focus is the connection. Mm -hmm. um, so providing opportunities for people to come together is a big part of how we are providing kind of wellness support for educators um, and informing people, you know, particularly at the first part of the, um, the pandemic when there was so much confusion, you know, people were confused about what was happening, what was going to happen next, you know, what the, what the regulations meant um, and being able to provide clear information so that people can kind of take off a box and have one less thing, right. uh, one less thing to be confused and worried about. That's that's a part of what we're doing too. Um, in the coming weeks, we are offering um, a wellness check-in, um, which is actually will be a facilitated session with a, a child and family therapist who uh, who will be talking about burnout and letting folks think about their own individual needs because I think the ECEs spend so much time considering the needs of other smaller people and of families and of their own families, they often don't get so much as a breath to check in with themselves and see how they actually feel. So having this session to kind of, to kind of check in, and see where people are at emotionally um, is one of the ways that we'll be providing wellness support. And I, you know, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to being able to, to provide something solid uh, at such a difficult time. I agree. That would really help. <laughs> I hope so. Um, 
I hope your voices reach the responsible sectors. And to be frank, in the voice of every working mom and dad, I can say without you, we cannot continue. A big thank you to all the ECEs and all the educators who thrive to keep our children safe and happy. Thanks, Erin, for accepting my request and joining me today. Please stay safe and I wish all Midtown listeners a lovely day ahead. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. (laughs) Bye-bye.